scripture reading today is 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. So how many of you guys have seen the, uh, the Grinch before, right? The Grinch that stole Christmas. I, I love this particular scene because it is like the climax of the movie. Um, it, it's where everything changes. It's where his little heart grows and he's able to return everything that he stole. Um, it's just, just a, really good, a really good story. And uh, stories have a way of allowing us to see things we've seen before. Uh, in, in a new way, in a fresh way. That's why we've been following these different narratives, uh, looking at the Christmas story. Um, they, they offer us uh, sort of a, an avenue into uh, a familiar narrative in a new way. And so we've taken a look at the need in the story of Christmas. And when you look at the human need in the story, uh, there's no question. There's a nightmare before Christmas, right? People are broken. The system was broken. We needed... Uh, we don't just need the visit from, from a monarchy. We need someone to come and save us. Well, when we take a look at the story uh, through the lens of, of hope and promise fulfillment, we see that uh, we can have a die-hard life. Uh, like John McClain, we can, we can have a life that just can't be explained by, um, by the normal uh, set of events. What, what keeps us going? What keeps us moving ahead? What allows us to, to never give up? Well, it's a God who promises. And you saw that in the life of Simeon, a man who trudged his way through the swamp of, uh, of first century Judaism every day to be faithful to God. So when you look at the nightmare before Christmas, when you look at a, a diehard faith, um, you get into the Christmas story in a way that perhaps uh, we, we haven't in the past or haven't done in a while. It's so easy sometimes they kind of miss Christmas. I was reading an article recently about some, uh, well, basically how uh, different sports programs work it so that the athletes don't miss Christmas, right? Because they're always playing during this time of year. And, you know, if you think about that, it's not just athletes who sometimes miss Christmas. It's sometimes just all of us. Sometimes we miss what Christmas is all about. Uh, we get wrapped up in the tinsel and wrapped up in the silver and gold, uh, wrapped up in the nostalgia and the quaint nature of Christmas. And, and sometimes we, we miss that Christmas is about the Christ. 
Sometimes we get wrapped up in sorrow. You realize that Christmas is often a time of year where people find the most difficult because they've lost loved ones or um, they're experiencing hardships. Uh, a, a young family who can't just who can't offer anything to their kids at Christmas or sometimes they're brokenhearted, right? Sometimes it's easy to miss the Christmas story. And so this morning, I, I really want to do kind of two things. I, I want to start uh, by, by referencing the Grinch, right? Um, and, and realizing that the, the point in the story that it turns on here, the climax, is when the Grinch understood the real meaning of Christmas, right? So that's what's one avenue that I want us to kind of hold attention. The other is a recognition that sometimes you don't just need a new story, sometimes you need an entirely different approach to the text. Matthew and, uh, and Luke do a great job of, of describing the narrative of, of Jesus and the incarnation and all of this. Um, but John also does a good job. I don't know if you, uh, if you felt this this morning, but um, when we read John 1, 1 to 4, that was a Christmas story. Now, it wasn't a narrative describing a, you know, a babe lying in a manger, but it is sort of like cliff notes, a theological cliff notes version of, of the Christmas story and what it actually means. Um, it's really focused on the incarnation, and there's a good reason for that. Just to put this in, in context for us, First John was written by, by John, who happens to be one of the authors in Scripture that, uh, that doesn't detail the, the birth of Christ. Sort of ironic, right? Um, Mark gets right into his ministry. Matthew and, and Luke uh, detail the narrative of, of Christmas. And then um, basically John starts in the cosmos. <laughs> in the beginning was what? The Word, and the Word was with God, right? So there's no, there's no nativity scene. It goes right into this cosmic Christ. By the way, the cosmic Christ was very well embraced by the first century. Part of the reason was, is uh, the, the thinking of a lot of people in the first century was sort of Gnostic. And what that means, as I've shared before, uh, Gnosticism sort of believed that the flesh was evil and the spirit was righteous or, or the spirit was good. And so it's real easy to look at Christ as this cosmic character, word become flesh, and say, yes, amen, I, I agree with this. But it was difficult for first century, especially late first century readers, to accept that Jesus was in fact flesh. Different, different teachings, different doctrines, uh, heresies arose from this need to see Jesus as the Spirit, not the flesh. Um, one, one of those doctrines was the idea that Jesus' deity came to him at his baptism and then left right before the crucifixion. I mean, after all, can we really think of a God that was created? Can we really think of a God that, that dies? Right? So it was very difficult for people to embrace and understand um, the deity and the humanity of Jesus. And so 1 John focuses on the incarnation. It, it, it doesn't do it with a narrative. It does it with theology. And it, and it indicates and, and, and sort of articulates the doctrine of incarnation. And so this morning, that's the other strand I want us to keep in tension. One is what John is saying, the incarnation. And, and let's think about that theologically. Because it's a Christmas message uh, distilled. And on the other hand, I want us to do what the, uh, what the Grinch does. Right? right before he does the scene we just saw, 
after he's robbed everyone, he gets close. And you remember in the story, he's listening for all the sorrow. Why? Because he's stolen everything. And he says, this is a noise, grinned the Grinch, that I simply must hear. So he paused, and the Grinch put his hand to his what? I want us to put our hands to our ears, metaphorically, and listen to the real meaning of Christmas. I think when we look at John, he does a great job of telling us what it's all about. One of the first things he does is illustrate love. Right? One of the first things that John says about, about the Christmas story, when he distills the theology of it, he sees love. A love from a king who dares to come in person. Did you hear all the, the language used here? Uh, that which we, uh, was from the beginning, which we have what? Heard. Which we have seen with our what? Our eyes. Which we have looked at and our what? Our hands have touched. Right, so why is all of a sudden John getting into all this sensory language? Why so tangible? Well, if you recall, they're struggling with the fleshly reality of Christ. And so John is very clear. Jesus is not just a good concept. He's not just a metaphor. He's not just a spirit or an idea that changes your life. Jesus is someone that John had seen, had touched, had experienced. And in this we see a picture of great love. If you read your bulletin this morning, you, you read an illustration from, uh, uh, basically, I think it was one of those, uh, oh, what was it? Uh, bits and pieces. Uh, it was a little article that was in there about a Persian king who loved his people so much that he would actually visit them incognito. He would dress like a poor person and show up and he would eat with them and experience their life. The bulletin points out he was a Persian king that loved his people so much, he actually went to a man who was living in the basement. And he ate the same stale, rough food that he ate, and he would bless him and encourage him. Well, finally, one day, the king shows up to this man and reveals himself. And, and the king is expecting for this poor man to ask for a blessing and for a gift. And in response, the poor man simply says, You cared enough to share your presence with me, to encourage me. Others might have received gifts from you, but we received, or I had the chance to receive you, as, as, as Matt said this morning, as that gift. See, this is what the, the, message of Jesus, or the message of Christmas is all about. The fact that God cared enough to come in the flesh, to come in person. His presence is a gift. Especially in light of the fact that he walked into our nightmare. He wasn't walking into to, uh, to praises and, and songs of, hey, here comes the king, right? Uh, they tried to kill him. He, he, he stormed the beaches of a spiritual Normandy. A king that didn't just share his presence, but took our place. And ultimately offered himself in our place on a cross. Oh, church, can we see Christmas as a story of love. Amen? Amen? It's also a story about grace. It's a story about grace. Listen to how John describes it. It's, 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 it's marvelous. Right? In the gospel, he will talk about Jesus is the word uh, made flesh, the light and enlightenment. That's the imagery he loves to dabble in, uh, in his gospel. And he kind of borrows some of that, but he gets it very, very clear in 1 John. 
He talks about that which was from the beginning in the first one. He talks about how it could be uh, experienced in the flesh. And then he begins to talk about the word of life. And then he gets here to this verse when he begins to say, the life, that life, this person, this life appeared. And we have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the what? We proclaim to you the eternal life. One of the descriptors, one of the names, if you will, titles given to Jesus is eternal life. Let that settle in for a second. Jesus, in in this description, is not just called Savior or Lord. He is called eternal life. This is a message. The message of Christianity, the message of Christmas, is a message of Grace, that Jesus came to do what we couldn't do for ourselves, a savior, life itself. Uh, Matt or Mike did a great job this past Wednesday. He was sharing with us on, on Wednesday uh, about Jesus, um, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And he was talking Wednesday in his devotional about how many different people uh, tried many different ways to approach God. Some people tried the way of sort of natural religion and, and experiencing God uh, in the heights of the mountains and, and so on and so forth. And, and some sort of experienced uh, Christianity through uh, religious practices. Um, and some even dared to try to approach Jesus uh, and approach God through their own good efforts, their own works. Sometimes people will approach you and say, well, I, you know, I, I, I want Jesus, but don't give me none of that doctrine stuff, Right? I, I don't really need Jesus. I, I live a pretty good life. I mean, I, I give to the poor. I pay my taxes. Uh, I show up on time. I do all these good things. You know, I, 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 when people are hurt, I help them. And all these good things that people do. What they don't realize is when, when you move from, say, don't give me this Jesus to, I, I live a pretty good life, you're not leaving doctrine. You're just, you're just turning to an alternative doctrine. Uh, in fact, the most popular doctrine about God that has ever been perpetuated on the earth is called the doctrine of salvation by works. And it is everywhere. It is at the heart of, it is at the heart of, of, of karma. You know, when we, we, we kind of talk about karma sometimes. We kind of play around with it as a, as a language. Well, it came back to bite me. I guess that's karma. You don't want karma. Karma is not good. Karma is, karma is the essence of works. You get in exactly what, or get out of the system exactly what you put into it. It is not a peaceful notion. Yes, you need, you're going to reap what you sow, but karma is the essence of works. It works is at the basis of, 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 of Buddhism and all these, these religions that seem so peaceful and tranquil. They, they actually ask you, to, to follow a path of sort of self, self-defeating lifestyles. De- de- defeating, defeating the urges and the desires of our life so that we can avoid pain and suffering and finally find a way to escape from this whole thing called life. Uh, works are at the base of any legalistic religion, even any law code that's out there. It, it, grace as important as it is, as we sung just a moment ago, um, grace is that thing which our heart is always longing for. Unfortunately, it is an appetite that we feed with the wrong stuff. It's like the person on the ship who is 
Well, who is uh, out stranded in the ocean and begins to drink the salt water? You know, it, one of the re- uh, weird things about drinking salt water, the reason it, it, it actually, what it actually does is dehydrate you. Did you know that? I mean, you're drinking it and it actually dehydrates. That's what works legalism does. You drink it because your heart is longing for acceptance and righteousness with God. And so you, you drink deeply of this, I will do it my way. I will, I will, I will show up. I will, I will be worth it. I will live a life of, of glory. And yet you're starving on the inside. If you choose the path of works religion, you choose a life of extremes. You choose a life of great pride when you do it right. And great disillusionment when you do it wrong. You know what you end up looking like? You end up looking like the Grinch. Whose heart is two times too small. Isolated. Angry. Bitter. Because spiritually speaking, you are literally dehydrating yourself. Jesus, according to the Christmas story, according to to 1 John here, God brings us our salvation in Christ. We are saved by His matchless grace. And when this happens, something does happen to our heart. Ezekiel says it this way. I will give you a what? A new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of, uh, remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Isn't that a beautiful picture of salvation? That God is going to take from you the anxiety and fear and stony bitterness of a life lived based on works save you according to His efforts. And our hearts, I think the story says, will move from two times too small to three times the size in one day. That's the story of Christmas. That's the story of Christianity. That's what 1 John says. If you look at the narrative through the lens of incarnation, you begin to see a king willing to come in person. You begin to see salvation by grace. And you also begin to see something about community. Uh, There's a contrast in the story. That's one of the things I love about the the, uh, the Grinch is the contrast of and the use of um, community in the text, right? At the beginning of the story, he's bitter, alone, on top of the mountain. The only person with him is this faithful old dog that gets it horrible the whole movie. I'm so, I get more mad about the dog treatment than I do the other who's. I'll just say it right now. Like, the dog is doing nothing but loving the guy, and he's just so cruel to it. But he's all alone. He's cruel to the people that love him. Juxtaposed, some of the first shots, he's on the mountain, and he can see the community below. So community is, is, is interplaying with this, this guy whose heart is too small. When, when, when things are fixed, right? At the end of the story, when his heart is full, where is he found? Not on the mountaintop. He's in the, the camp of the Who's. Um, carving the roast what? Beast. I love that part. It's not roast beef. Roast beast. Because it rhymes. That's right. It's like, a, it's like a sad country song that just makes everything rhyme, you know? <laughs> community. Community. This is, this is what John is talking about. You see, if you understand grace, and if grace has got a hold of you, then, then you're not prone to a life like the Grinch. You're not prone to great pride or great prejudice because your, your heart has been satisfied, satiated with the grace of God. And because of that, you're actually formed for community. Listen to what John says. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have what? Fellowship 
fellowship, koinonia, with us. And our koinonia, our fellowship, is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Grace isn't just what makes us right with God. It's what makes us right with each other. This is why, by the way, Christianity has always been known by the company it keeps. It has always had a questionable reputation. That's why Jesus, as a baby, shows up in the arms of, not the rich and famous, but a couple who had to offer up um, the, 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 the sacrifice of the poor in the temple. This is why Messiah was, was ridiculed as one who would spend time with the tax collectors and sinners and, and the infirmed and Samaritans and the prostitutes. This is why the early church was looked upon as something strange because community was very, very much a matter of birds of a feather in antiquity. You didn't, you didn't just hang out with other cultures in antiquity. You get, the church was filled with Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, insiders, outsiders, upsiders, downsiders, left and right, beautiful and ugly, Ohio State fans and Kent State fans, everyone, all in the same community, loving each other, unique. Why? Because grace forms us for fellowship, takes away the anxiety. It puts everyone on the same page and offers everyone in the room something amazing. This is a, another picture that comes to mind when I think of the Grinch. Oh, go back one. There we go. Um, this is an up close and personal picture of the roast beast, by the way. Um, maybe it's, I think it's because of the food that I was thinking of this as joy. Um, <laughs> but they, you know, the story ends in a party. And, and I just see joy in this picture, right? Look at the little girl. Her eyes are just like way too big for her body. And she's... You know, just digging what's going on. The dog finally gets his comeuppance, right? It's awesome. He's the first person in the cartoon to get a piece of steak. Did you notice that? I love that part. And then here's the Grinch. Just this joyful contentment on his face. And yet this is what the Christmas story offers. It offers a king in our place. It offers grace. It offers fellowship. And above all, it offers joy. John says, I'm telling you all this about the incarnation. I'm sharing my Christmas story. We write this, he says, to make our what? Joy complete. Joy is an amazing thing. And you and I, as followers of Christ, have it beyond measure. I know this because this is something that Jesus prayed for. You know, when Jesus prays for something, it's going to happen. Amen? When Jesus is petitioning the Father, it's not one of those things as, okay, is this in your will or out? Jesus knows the will of the Father. He's pleading with his Father in John chapter 17. And this is what he says. He's speaking originally of his, uh, his disciples, but he's also speaking of us by inference. I am coming to you, he's talking to the Father, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they, disciples, us, you and me, may have the full measure of what? My joy. See, the joy we have is a little bottle, right, of joy. It is the full measure of Jesus' joy in our lives. And joy, joy is operative. It's not passive. It, it's alive. Someone has said that joy is like 
A thermostat rather than a thermometer. A thermometer sort of measures the temperature, but a thermostat changes the temperature. And that's what joy does. Joy is the knot at the end of your rope. And the knot at the end of our rope is not a little bitty knot. Right? For those of us who, who, um, whose uh, capacity outweighs their arm strength, right? Yet I need a big knot at the end of my rope, right? If I got a little knot, I'm in trouble. I'm coming off the rope. But Jesus, the knot is big. It is large. It has like a sofa on it. You, you, you can stand on that knot of the joy of God. Because it's not your joy, it's His. It's significant. It changes us. It keeps us going. And we move from joy to not, to joy, to joy, to joy. And Matt, where's this joy come from? Oh, the joy comes when you realize we have a king who cared enough to come in person. The joy comes when you realize you are saved by grace, not your works, His. We have joy when we get to embrace a community of fellowship like this, formed for fellowship. And we embrace it because it's something our Lord and Savior prayed for, something He gave to us. Okay, I'm going to try something this morning. It may absolutely not work. Um, so you're just going to have to give me grace. Um, so everyone who has a cell phone, can you take it out, please? And um, if you don't know how to do this, ask the seven-year-old next to you, okay? Um, and if you didn't bring your cell phone, that's okay, too. We're all going to participate in this together. Um, I want everyone to go into the settings of their cell phone and turn their light on. Uh, everyone know? Well, yeah, just like this, right? Everyone turn their light on. Um, you know, it was interesting. Roger was sharing with me after the first lesson of a tradition that took, uh, takes place. And if someone could get the lights too, that would be great. Um, there's a tradition that takes place uh, where people will put a light in their window. And, and the idea comes from what we were talking about. Um, some of, oh, I, who was talking about that? Oh, it was Jeremy talking about this morning, uh, about the person, the, the innkeeper. The idea is, in the original story, uh, there was no room for them. But in our story, we're saying, yes, there's room for you in the inn. And so they put these candles in the windows. And I thought, what an awesome way to, to sort of tell our brothers and sisters in Christ and anyone who might be visiting with us today that this church, that people in this church understand the Christian message. That we say, yes, Jesus, come into our hearts and do what you can do. Turn our small little hearts into these big hearts full of joy. But I want to do so in the manner in which the Grinch did. You see, the Grinch listened carefully. And what did he hear? He heard a song. And that song is what, is what put it into his heart, the real meaning of Christmas. So what I want us to do this morning is this. I want us to listen to this song that I have prepared. It's by, um, oh, what's her name? Daigle. Yeah, Daigle. Right? You guys love Daigle. I'm learning to love Daigle, too. And um, I do already, actually. She's wonderful. And she sings this song called Noel. I don't know if you guys have heard it. But it is a stirring song. A song that if we allow it to minister to us this morning, I think will have the same effect 
in the story we just saw a moment ago. But we have to listen carefully to the words. Some songs I, I, I encourage us all to sing with us if you know it. But more than anything, listen to the words of this song. Listen to the words. And allow it to do what God has, uh, remind you of what God has done. And then, if you're willing this morning to say, yes, Jesus, be the Lord and Savior of my life. Whether you've done that when, a long time ago or whether or not you've not done it yet. Would you just stand when that happens? So uh, what I'm trying to say is don't just stand immediately. Really be thoughtful about this. Listen to the message. And when you're ready to say, Lord Jesus, come on in. Would you just stand when that happens? Don't be afraid to be the first one. Don't be afraid to be the last one. Don't be afraid not to do it at all if you're not feeling it. And if this is your first time saying, Lord Jesus, come be a part of my heart, please come and talk to me afterwards. I'd love to share with you what it looks like to become a disciple of Christ. Amen? So now, put your hand to your ears and listen to the song.
story of amazing love given for us. God, I just ask you to work in our hearts today. To fill them full of love. To give us the strength of ten who plus two. To bring your love to the world around us. To tell them of the story of a king come to this place. To tell them of a king who died in our place. The story of grace. Of a God who will remove our hearts of stone for a heart of flesh. God who not only forms us for fellowship with Him, but fellowship with one another. A God who gives us His own joy. This is a story of amazing love. And Father, in this, this room, many of us who've, who've known You for so long have, are say yes again every time to You as Lord and Savior. And Father, yet in a room as large as this, perhaps there are some... Perhaps there is some God who, who said it for the very first time that, that you, they want you in their hearts and in their minds and in their lives. Praise you for this. And give them the courage to come, to, to speak, to, to begin a journey here with us at New Beginnings because that's what we're all about, New Beginnings. This is the story of all stories. Bless us, Father. We offer this prayer, this worship, our hearts, our lives, everything about us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you.